Well, it is indeed uh, good to be back uh, with you all. Um, that's right, I'm, I'm the director at the Bible Institute of Geneva. Uh, and um, we, have a, we have the vision of training young people for gospel ministry all throughout the French-speaking world. It's a French-speaking institute. And uh, Martin gave a class for a number of years on visiting the sick, a pastoral uh, visits to the sick. Thank you, Martin, for that investment for us. Uh, and I asked him if I could just share maybe just very briefly a, a, a few sentences about the school. Um, we're in Geneva. We're, we have two main programs. We have a one-year program uh, for adults that want to take a year off and study the Bible in the context of living together, community life, and practical service. It's about half of our students. And then we have a four-year program that, after the first year, happens in full-time internships in churches in France, in Switzerland. And uh, that's for those who want to go into full-time vocational ministry, such as being a pastor or missions. And I don't, know if, I don't know if any of you have ever thought about taking a year off or you want to work on your French. Uh, we have, the best way to find out more is an open house. And we have two open houses coming up that present the first year program. And I got a little flyer. I left it out on the table out there if that interests you to discover more. Uh, we have students that come all the way from Brittany, from the south of France, and occasionally from the Canton de Vaux. So <laughs> you're invited to, to check it out. All right, let's, uh, let's dive into the book of Proverbs. So, so you've, as a church, been studying the book of Proverbs, which is a book about wisdom. So what is wisdom? To, to quote a recent sermon, it's navigating life with skill. Right, navigating the, the difficulties of life with skill. Or, I think Aristotle captured well the idea of wisdom that we see in the book of Proverbs. He said wisdom was the moral will to want to do the right thing combined with the moral skill to know how to do the right thing in the very complex situations of life. Having the will to want to do the right thing and then the know-how when so often in life the, the basic rules don't apply in a, in a very direct way. That's, that's wisdom. And that's very much is how Proverbs present wisdom. And maybe every generation feels this way, but don't you think it's getting harder? Right? Given, given the, the world in which we live, given the role the internet has, social media has, given the way politics work, uh, we have more expertise, right? But would you say we're growing as a culture in wisdom? I'm, I'm not sure. Which is why the book of Proverbs is like so relevant and so important for us to go back and to think, okay, well, how does God help us grow in wisdom? And today we're going to look at something that's maybe not the most popular topic, but it is a foundational topic. It's like the foundation of a house. You know, if you, if you build your foundations with cardboard and then you have extremely high quality, Swiss made, you know, gold plated uh, appliances, you're not gonna enjoy a, a séjour very long in the house, right? And that's what this topic is. It's this topic of pride and humility. It's something fundamental in our lives and wise people are those who are growing in humility. Wise people grow in humility. So today, let's look at that. And I, I, what if we look at six questions that Proverbs answers about pride and humility? I, I don't even know if that's allowed here. Six-point sermons? I, <laughs> I, did, I didn't check with Martin before. But I'll, I'll try to go quickly. So the, here are the questions. What is pride? What are some signs of pride? Where does pride lead? And then humility. What is humility? What are some signs of humility? And how do we grow in humility? So first, what is pride? 
according to the book of Proverbs. Now, obviously, pride can have a positive sense, right? You might be proud of your school, right? The students here, you've got, you're going to a good school. Uh, parents are proud of their kids. You might be proud of the, the city right next to you, their hockey team. Go Servette. Okay, that was a flop. Anyway, that, that, that pride language is used in the Bible, but that's not how Proverbs uses uh, the word pride. Okay, pride, is, it's in the negative sense. For example, Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, says God. You can see the parallelism, right? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, and that is contrasted with a list of vices. And isn't it interesting that the two first vices, the, the negative qualities are what? Pride and arrogance. And it goes on the way of evil. God hates, he rejects. Now what's interesting, these, the two words, pride and arrogance, in Hebrew they have a basic simple meaning. And the meaning is simply to be lifted up, to be exalted, to use the, the old word, to be, to be higher than we should be. And that really does capture the sense of pride. It's a, it's a self-lifting up apart from God because it was contrasted with the fear of God, right? Instead of fearing God, instead of being aware of God, we're, we're, we're centered on ourself. It's a feeling of self-importance, a self-lifting up that uh, makes ourselves what is most important. Or, chapter 6, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and then the list goes on. And again, the first on the list is eyes that are haughty, that look out with a sense of superiority because we have a very puffed up self-importance. So we look out at the world. It's a, that's why I say it's a foundational problem. It's a way of looking at the whole world in which we are sort of the center and we are important, more important than we should be. Often it comes out in the form of uh, looking down on others. So verse 24 of chapter 21, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, the haughty man who acts with pride. Scoffing, I guess as Americans, we don't use that word very much. Do you use the word scoffing? The Brits, you guys are more sophisticated, right? You just, I got scoffed at school today. <laughs> I'm not scoffing at you, I hope. <laughs> but Americans, it means to look down and think others are dumber than you are, right? And that we're, we're really good at, right? Look at our media, where it thrives on a sense of the others are stupid, the others know less than we do, we know more. And, and that's just that self-inflated importance that I know, I'm in the, I'm in the know compared to others. So, I have it. so pride, an inflated view of ourselves that looks down on others without regard to God. That's pride. So what are some signs? What are some signs of pride in our life? And we all know that some proud people, it's very obvious. You can think of certain politicians or CEOs or people that are, are, are proud, are arrogant. Their whole life revolves around them, it's very obvious. But, here's where it's tricky, pride can take very different forms. And often pride works in our lives in much more subtle, way, subtle ways. And uh, you know, isn't it true? Isn't it possible to feel sort of smug? You see someone who's arrogant and proud and you think, hmm, 
I'm not proud like that. I'm humbler. <laughs> uh, that's a different form of pride, but it's just the same thing. And that's the thing. Pride, can, pride camouflages itself very quickly in our lives. Even that's what Proverbs points out. Proverbs 26, 12 puts it this way. You see a man who is wise in his own eyes, there is more hope for a fool than for him. A real fool might realize he's a fool. <laughs> like if the sports team has a terrible training program and they lose every single match of the season, they might say, gosh, maybe we need to rethink our training. But if the team thinks they're the best, if they're wise in their own eyes, they're not they're going to realize the problem. And that's what pride does to us. Jonathan Edwards, he was an American theologian, and he witnessed a great work of God around him in his time. It's called a revival, when many people come to realize the, the, the reality of Christ and the beauty of Christ, and the churches were full. And he, he came to see that one of the greatest dangers in the church, especially in these times when God is really working, is spiritual pride. I had a little article called The Dangers of Undiscerned Spiritual Pride, and he says this, the first and worst cause of errors that abound in our day and age is spiritual pride. The first. The first and worst error. Alas, how much pride the best have in their hearts. It is the worst part of the body of sin and death, the first sin that ever entered into the universe, and the last that is rooted out. It is God's most stubborn enemy. And he goes on to warn. He says, those who are most zealous, most passionate in the cause of God are those most likely to be targeted as being filled with pride. See, pride has a unique way of hijacking God's good work in our lives so that suddenly we, we have an inflated view of ourselves that sort of got a veneer, a very religious, evangelical kind of veneer around it. So, so what are some of the signs? That's why it's important to think through this. Well, one obvious one is that we compare ourselves a lot with others. We compare. There's sort of in the back of our mind, kind of an ongoing process of saying, okay, how, how do I match up with them? We sort of have a, a scale. After all, pride is inflated, right? Pride is being higher, and there's sort of a, a scale about the things we care about the most. And we're often measuring, okay, how do they measure up to me? How do I measure up to them? It's, it's a comparing, or, or at least I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing better than they are. I'm, I'm wealthier, I'm smarter, I'm more unfit, my kids are better, my house is better, cleaner. It, it's, it's easy in subtle ways, right, to sort of say, okay, where am I, where's my value, and we do it through comparing. You know, sociologists have studied, they've conducted studies, and they show that people who respond anonymously, people would prefer to earn 5000 a month if they're living among people who earn 3000 a month than earn 10000 a month if the people around them are earning 20,000 a month. That's amazing, isn't it? They prefer to half their salary if everyone around them is making even half of that. See, it's not just about being wealthy, it's about being wealthier, right? It's not just about being smart, it's about being, feeling smarter. It's, it's that comparing that we're, we're ranking in, in a subtle way behind us. That's one uh, sign, another is, is fear which means seem paradoxical, because sometimes the very brash, arrogant people seem fearless. But I think very often, in, behind and deep down, when we're ranking and when we're, trying, when we're living with an inflated view of self, it end up, ends up making us very fragile. Because you know our egos are not bulletproof. And that brings a lot of fragility when we're always worrying, how do I come across? 
What are they going to think of me? Where am, I, where am I lining up? And if I do that, I'm going to look dumb. I'm going I'm to scoot down on the, my scale. And so we're, we're limited. We're shy. We're, we're pulled in. And we're fearful. That's why pride often can also reveal itself in a very low self-esteem. See, some proud people, they know they're good. They know they're good. They're, I want the attention on me. But others, what happens when we feel like we're lower than what we wish we were? We feel terrible about ourselves, right? But it's the same scale. We're functioning with the same scale. Gosh, you know, I wish I... I don't measure up to the others in my class. I'm a loser. I'm, I'm nothing. And it, it's a self-focus, but we're going down. Mirror, mirror, on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? She was feeling good until Snow White came along. Well, someone else. And then she was angry, and then the wicked wish wanted to get out at her. And, and so often that happens uh, in our own lives. A lack of gratitude, that's an obvious sign. Because we're focused on ourselves, because we have an inflated view. The good things in, we, in our lives, we think they come from us, and they're, they're because we're doing everything right. And we don't realize how much, we're, how much we're receiving around us and how all the reasons we have to be grateful. Quick to find fault, quick to find fault, quick to criticize, but slow to receive criticism ourselves. That's a classic, isn't it? Because when we're focusing on the scale, we're very sensitive to where other people are at. And when they're not doing so well, it's easy and sort of enjoyable to point it out. Well, there. And sometimes we, we reassure ourselves. Like the church across the town, they're growing. Their preacher is much more gifted than I am. But they're not as faithful to the Bible. We're, <laughs> they're selling out. We, we try to find things that right, make us feel better about what we're doing. And it's true. Huh? Uh, Proverbs says, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you, Proverbs 9, 7. Have you had the experience? At the Bible school, we have a final year-end evaluation for all the students. And it's just, I think it's so funny. The students that come to me and say, David, oh, this is great. Tell me where the areas I need to work in my life. I came here to, I want to work on my, my faults and the things I need to grow in. Would you, I really appreciate this chance to sit down with you. Would you point out the things I need to work on? For the students like that, I have a hard time finding them. However, the students where it's very obvious, I need to give some feedback, like I think you need to, to work on being you know, more, having a better attitude in the way you serve. They're so often the hardest people, the ones that I don't sleep very well the night before because I know they're not gonna take it very well. So, there are a few signs of pride. Okay, what's the result of pride? Where does pride lead? And you remember the verses that were read? It's a refrain that goes all the way through the book of Proverbs. 16.8, pride goes before destruction and haughty spirit before a fall. 18.12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility brings honor and more. What is God's perspective? It's very sober, isn't it? It leads to destruction. We might think, okay, pride, that's kind of annoying. Yeah, people who are kind of centered on themselves, that's, that's too bad. It's more than too bad. It, it leads to destruction. Pride is like buying a an amazing new car, a brand new Audi, at a bargain price because there's no brakes, and taking it out for a spin on the freeway. <laughs> It'll last for a while, but won't end well. And obviously, this sometimes this is visible, right? The, the super overconfident people or the super overconfident sports team that forgets they need to do any training, and then the final match is a total disaster because they, they haven't paid attention. It, 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 pride puts us on a collision course with reality because we're unable to see our weaknesses, we're unable to see our faults, and it's extremely dangerous. But at another level, pride is, 
is often subtle, and pride follows something of an upside-down U-curve. Uh, see, th th there's a rise, there's a moment where we rise, where we feel good about ourselves, where we're lifted up, and at that moment, sometimes the destruction part seems unimaginable. Things are going well, everything's great, and, and that's why this warning is so key. A repeated, watch out, because the end matters, and the end of pride, the end of a proud life is destruction. It's a terrible downfall, and the same is true for spiritual pride. And for a while, spiritual pride can feel good, we can feel better than others, we can feel sort of self-righteous. Uh, it, it destroys God's work almost like nothing else. And whole churches have just been finished because of spirit of spiritual pride that, that grew in. And they were, they were good churches. They had so much going for them, but they became things, look, look how much better we are than all the other Christians around us. And then sooner or later, that leads to, that zaps all spiritual vitality, and God is opposed. Can you imagine? Being a church, and God is opposed to your church. That's not a position you want to be, be in. And um, I mean, we, we can see it. I mean, it hurts our testimony. Maybe you know someone, and they, they sing all the right songs, and they go to church, and they're committed Christians, but you pick up pretty quick a sense of superiority. They feel better. And that just destroys our our witness and our testimony to what God has done and what, who God really is. Okay, so th there's a few points on pride. Let's look now at humility. So what is humility? Now we might think, okay, pride is, a, it is an inflated self-view, so therefore humility must be a deflated self-view. Maybe humility is just simply going down on the scale and feeling bad about ourselves or feeling lousy. But that's why we need to come back and, and look at how Proverbs talks about humility. Let me read 22, verse 4. The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Now, did you notice? He doesn't just say the reward for humility is riches, etc. The word for humility and the fear of Lord and the fear of the Lord. Which we saw at the beginning, right? Humility, uh, pride is a self-importance apart from God, not without the fear of the Lord. And what humility is, is seeing ourselves as God sees us. In fact, I think humility and the fear of the Lord are really two sides of the very same coin. We can't really have one without the other. We can't just say, okay, I'm gonna be humble, boom. No, we, we have to see ourselves accurately in light of how God sees us. And, and God is the ultimate reference point. We have to sort of have an accurate, true view of ourselves. That's where humility uh, starts. Maybe another way of thinking about this is humility is a decentering of the self and a putting God in the center. I like how Tim Kim Keller, and he's inspired by C.S. Lewis, he talks about humility as a healthy self-forgetfulness. See, it, it's not just thinking more of ourselves or thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking about ourselves less. It's that wonderful sense of, I know who I am in front of God, and I'm, I'm, I'm aware of him, and I'm more interested in other things than myself. In fact, it, it's not going up or down the scale. It's sort of pushing the scale away and being freed from the whole scale game altogether. That's humility. So what are signs of humility? And you know, I think it's easy. It's easy to, in our culture, humility thinks we feel bad about ourselves or we're kind of this very shy, mousy, I'm so humble, I don't want to impose anything, and I'm kind of apologizing for my own existence. That's not biblical humility. I mean, look, the verse says, the reward for humility is and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. That is a fullness, isn't it? 
Isn't, ironically, isn't that the case? When we're not seeking honor for ourselves, we're not seeking riches for ourselves, we're freed from all that, we actually do better at receiving them, and that liberates us to, to enjoy and even to receive God's blessings of, of riches and honor and life. Humility is, um, is very liberating and very rich. It's a rich, full life. Gavin Ortland, he has a little book on humility, and I kind of like how he pointed out the, the benefits of humility for today's culture. He says, humility is restful. It's relaxing. It's true, isn't it? You know, when our ego is not, is not driving us all the time and trying to go up the scale and trying to compare ourselves, we can relax. We can just be ourselves. We can... Uh, we can enjoy the successes around us. We can enjoy the success of others that are quite similar to us and doing better than us. And we can just celebrate and enjoy. It's very re relaxing. Uh, humility is happy. It's a positive weight. It's, uh, it's freezes. I mean, you know, people who are arrogant and proud, right? They, they might laugh, but it's sort of a cold, critical laugh, right? It's the scoffing laugh. But those who are humble have this other, this joy. They can laugh at themselves. And, and we are funny, aren't we? <laughs> we do a lot of dumb things. <laughs> and it's really nice to be able to laugh at yourself instead of being, instead of like, oh, I'm sinking down the scale of value to say, huh, I, I'm, I'm freed from that. And I can, I can enjoy the, the life God gave me. It's not perfect. It is what it is. And I can be grateful about it. Thomas Burton said, pride makes us artificial and humility makes us real. It's true. It makes us authentic. And I think the touchstone of that is, is a joy, a joy in our life, certainly as we see who we are in light of God. You know, humility makes us courageous because, you know, we're not, we're not burdened by, okay, what are other going to people think? What is this going to do? We don't have that inflated and fragile ego driving us. And when that's been put aside, that liberates us for working hard. That liberates us for being courageous, for stepping out. And if we look dumb, it's not a big deal, right? Because we're humble. And so we can try things, and we can fail at them, and we can accept criticism, and we can move on, uh, and we can be productive. So humility. So last, how do we grow in humility? How do we become more humble? It actually is harder than you think, I think. Because you know, if you say, okay, I'm going to become more humble. Okay, guys, this week, let's try to become 10% more humble. I'll check in next week, my interview. Have you become 10% more humble? You say, yes, I am. I'm more humble now this week than I was last week. Hmm. No, we've now fallen 10% more proud, not humble. That's why theologians, they say humility is a shy virtue. You, know, you can't really pursue it head on. So what do you, what do we, how do we pursue humility? Well, it goes back to what humility is. It's the reflection of a fear of the Lord. And that's how we grow in humility we really have lives that are full of a true and healthy fear of the Lord. And we see ourselves in light of that. So we can't just pursue it head on, but it is a fruit, it's a clear result of a life that is marked by the fear of the Lord. And that's a theme that goes all the way through the book of Proverbs. So, so what, is, what is the fear of the Lord? I uh, quote a sermon from a few weeks ago, the fear of the Lord is a happy, awe-filled reverence for the God we love. It's a happy, awe-filled reverence reverence for the God we love. It's a good definition. I think humility does, on, on the fear of the Lord, on one side, we see God's great power, which is terrifying. God is really, really powerful. And yet we see that in his power, God loves us. And when those things come together, they produce in us this trembling 
wonderful, loving reaction, which is what the Old Testament calls the fear of the Lord. I mean, just, do you remember in the Gospels the story of Jesus and the disciples in the boat? I was go out in the boat, and there's a big storm on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples are terrified. The boat is, is going to sink, and they, they're just terrified. And that's, that's fear, right? That's, we know that. That's human fear. Right? I don't know if you've ever had the experience, but if you're in a boat and you think you're about to go down, it's very, very scary. And Jesus is resting. He's relaxing at the bottom of the boat. Maybe a picture of humility. I don't know. He, he gets up, and with a word, with a word, he says, storm, be calm. And the stormy lake calms. And the disciples turned to him, and the text says they were filled with a great fear. And they said, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? That's another kind of fear. That's the good fear, isn't it? Whoa. This, who is this man? He is so powerful. He can talk to a lake and a storm, and it obeys him. And you know, the Bible teaches Jesus came, he died, he rose. We can know the same Jesus today, right now, through faith. And have you ever thought about that? That story is such a small, tiny picture of the power he really has. I mean, Jesus can say stop not only to one storm on one lake, but to every storm on every corner of this planet. He controls it all. He could say, be stormy, and there will be storms. He could say, be still, and every wind in every corner of this globe would stop. In fact, every storm in the galaxy, all the storms on Jupiter's moons, and every movement, I mean, Hebrews says he's upholding all things by the word of his power. That's incredible power, isn't it? That, Jesus Christ has incredible power, and with that power, incredible love for you and me. And do you know how he proved that love for you and me? He humbled himself, and he came down to save proud and arrogant people and bring them into a relationship with the joy of God. And that's, that's the big story, right? I mean, Jesus, he had every reason to be proud, but it wasn't pride. I mean, he, he, he had it all. He had it all. He, he was at the right hand of God. He had infinite glory. He, he was the one that had a right reason to boast in being the best and being the strongest and being the smartest. And what did he do? You know the verse. It's a very famous verse, Philippians 2. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. And taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he became found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how much he loved us. The infinite, powerful Jesus, the king, came down, took the form of a servant for you and I, and went all the way to a cross so that we could be forgiven, so that our pride could be washed away. That's why the, the, the way God humbles us is uh, showing us the fear of the Lord in what he did on the cross and the resurrection. The gospel humbles us like nothing else. I think you guys are fans of the Chronicles of Narnia here in this church, right? I think it's often quoted. Let me follow the tradition. Do you remember the story of Eustace? It's probably, maybe Martin's already mentioned this. And his undragoning, the undragoning of Eustace, the voyage of the Don Trenner. Eustace was a little boy. He was very proud and very arrogant, and uh, he gets sucked into Narnia. 
and uh, he turns into a dragon because he's greedy, which was Lewis's little way of saying pride and arrogance do make us animal-like, make us little dragons. He really turned into one, and he was miserable as a dragon, and he wanted to change. He wanted to change back into a boy, and he couldn't do it on his own. And finally, he meets Aslan, the Christ figure, and Aslan leads him to a clear spring of water. And Eustace finds he climbs in, and he's in this water. He can tear off his dragon skin, but to his uh, dismay, he finds that each time he tears off a layer, another layer grows right in its place. And you know, that's a really good picture for pride, because often that's exactly what happens. We realize we're proud, we realize we're arrogant, and so we say, okay, we try to tear off our, our pride and our arrogance, but you know what just happens? Another layer grows right in its place. It might have a better humility paint job, it might be a little better camouflage as spiritual pride, but it's still, we're still centered on ourselves. we're still about us, we're still trying to, we're still inflated, and we just keep tearing the layers, and it wouldn't work. So then Eustace, he had to let Aslan do the first tear. This is what he, he writes. This is what Lewis writes. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Now, if you're a Christian, do you remember that moment when you realized it took the cross to save you from your pride? I mean, Christianity humbles us so much. It just crushes our ego when we realize Jesus Christ had to die for me so that I could be presentable before God. It's awful, right? It's a wonderful thing to become a Christian, but there is that moment when our pride is crushed I mean, the cross just puts our ego through a paper shredder. I mean, I mean, here we are. Think of Jesus in the garden. We're in, we're in Lent season right now. We're thinking that we're preparing for Easter. Think of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating blood. He's in agony. He's saying, God, is there any other way? Is there any way to make this cup pass from me? Think of Jesus saying that for you and for me. Father, is there any other way to save David Niblack except for the cross except for the nails, except for the mockery, except for the blood, except for the shame, except for all that, the separation from you, is there any other way? And the answer is no. For me to be restored with God, it took the cross. And I couldn't contribute anything. That's the basic message of the Bible, right? We're saved 100% by the grace of God. We're saved 100% by the work of God. I come to God, I don't have anything to bring, and what God had to do for me was give his son as a sacrifice. <laughs> Is there room for boasting? Is there room for me being proud? And, oh, well, I, no, it's, it's shattered. It's, and nothing humbles us. Like when we realize what Christ had to do, when we realize the cross, how far, how low he had to come, but you know, nothing so lifts us up, too, when we realize that he wanted to do it and what he really accomplished for us. We are united to him, and we share in his resurrection life and glory. Christ came, he died for us. Three days later, he was raised from the dead, and we share that victory. I mean, and that is an honor and a glory and riches beyond our wild streams in eternity with God in a world made new in which we are seated. I mean, Paul says in Ephesians, a Christian, he is seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He is seated next to Christ right now. 
That is the place of supreme power, supreme glory, supreme honor for nothing we did. But we, we share, <laughs> we really share in this glory, not because of anything we did, but because of the pure grace and love of God that lifts us up. I mean, we, we have a riches beyond, beyond reckoning if we're in Christ. And um, that, that, ironically, gives us this humility that's solid. See, because after all, there is a scale, isn't there? You know, we, we talk about the scale, but really, there really is a scale because it's, we live in a world where God, God rules and God's will for our life is that scale. It's a law. That's why I think deep down we all struggle with some form of performance because we're going to appear before the throne of God one day. I mean, we are made in his image, and so we, we, we seek for justice, we seek for beauty, we seek for those things, and all those translate into choices. There is a scale. But Jesus, who was at the top of the scale, came down, and he paid the price for you and me. And so right now in Christ, we have a perfect on that scale. Our life is already celebrated. God looks down at us, he says, perfect, justified, uh, uh, victory. We're okay. And so the humility we have is a, a profound liberation because Christ paid the price. He, he who is perfect offers us his righteousness. So let's be humble, let's fear the Lord and be humble. Let me close with the final encouragement. The gospel humbles us. And you know, I think in our lives, God also, in his love, he, he uses circumstances to humble us. I think it's hard to say, okay, this week I'm going to go out and I'm be more humble. But if God loves us and he does as his children, he is at work in our life producing humility. And often he does that through circumstances. And I am sure in this room, many of you are, you, he's humbling you because he loves you. And it's not always easy. And I wonder what it is in your life. Maybe it's that relationship. It's the, it's the hardest relationship in your life. And it's hard for you and you don't know what to do. Would you just accept, okay, God, maybe you're, you want to produce a sweeter and a deeper humility in my life through this relationship. Help me have a good attitude. Or maybe it's a financial thing. Maybe it's a health thing. Maybe it's a relationship that's the relationship that is not in your life that you wish it was. God doesn't waste these things. I think what we can do as Christians, we go, okay, God, you love me, and yet you want me to grow in humility, grow in the fear of the Lord. Help me accept this. Help me humble myself. Teach me. Teach me how to walk in humility in what you're doing in my life. And he will lift us up at the proper time. Let me pray.